to chapter 3, I'm going to use the key word Bible commentary. It's a very interesting, kind of a unique commentary in that it gives um, thoughts on every chapter of the Bible. It gives the key verse, a key thought, a key quotable quote, a key uh, person, place, or thing, uh, a key idea, a key takeaway. It gives all these keys. And it really does a, a pretty admirable job to reduce an entire chapter down to these very simple thoughts. So I'm going to use its key verse for the first three chapters. So according to the key word Bible commentary, chapter 1 and verse 4 is the key verse. It reads like this. He, speaking of God the Father, chose us in Him, speaking of God the Son, Christ, So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Chapter 2, the key verse they identify is verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we're starting chapter 3. They identify the key verse as verse 12. I'm going to use the New International Version because it... It reduces it to a single sentence. And if I use the English Standard Version, it doesn't read as a complete sentence. And i got to add more than one key verse. So, according to the NIV, in Him and through faith in Him, we we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's a really good summary of the first three chapters of Ephesians. I'll read it all together. It reads like this. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The first three chapters of Ephesians. Another way to look at it is from the Word Search Bible Outlines. I've edited it just a little bit. And the first, uh, well, the entire book looks like this. There's a very short apostolic greeting in the first two verses. And then the, the rest of those first three chapters are all about a believer's position by grace in grace. Grace permeates those first three chapters. What you are by grace, in grace, and then in Christ. Then the last three chapters... Describe a believer's walk, service, and warfare by the Spirit. So, Ephesians is very much structured like Romans, shorter than Romans. But it's structured like Romans is that it starts off with, these things are true in those first three chapters. He doesn't ask you to do anything. He just tells you what is true if you're in Christ. And then after establishing that for three chapters, then the second three chapters, he's like, now here's what you do with it. So we're not in the here's what you do with it part yet, but you really can't adequately do anything until you understand what Christ has already done. That's how Ephesians is structured. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the bulletin insert. If it is colored green or red, I'm going to... You may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 977. And since Paul can take rabbit trails, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail as well. This is going to be... uh
This is good. That's because I didn't have my mic on, and he's wondering, like, why is he not amplified? And then I turned it on, and... But you're all awake, so... <laughs> yeah, that... All right, so Ephesians chapter 3. Here's another way to break up uh, or look at uh, Paul's progression in, in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1... We see God's eternal purpose of grace set forth in Christ for the elect. That's kind of the emphasis in chapter 1. In chapter 2, God's purpose of grace set forth in Christ, now specifically for Gentiles. Specifically Gentiles. Though, Though everyone needed Christ, they all need His salvation, but specifically the focus is on Gentiles. You were far off. You were strangers. You were dead. I mean, nobody saw this coming and God made you alive. You Gentiles in chapter 2. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, it's God's purpose of grace set forth in Christ for the church. Parentheses, Jews and Gentiles. That doesn't mean all Jews, all Gentiles. It means those Jews, those Gentiles whose faith is in Christ comprise this, this one new body called the church. That's the emphasis in chapter 3. So we're going to be talking a lot about the church, what the nature of the church is. When we get into chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's what the church ought to be doing. So that's kind of where, we at, where we're at as we begin chapter 3. We're considering the being of the church. That's called ontology. Ontology is the being of something. What makes something what it is? It's easy when you think, when people think about the church, especially in secular culture, when they think about the church, they think about what the church does. But before the church does anything, you start with what the church is. And what the church is, is what God has done in those people. That makes them the church. That's ontology. The, the subject or the study of being, of existence, of nature. Now, here's my rabbit trail, because, uh, well, actually, I forgot. Eugene Peterson, his quote, which I showed you three weeks ago. Eugene Peterson writes, Paul wants us to understand church, first of all, and primarily in terms of ontology, its being, not its function. There are, of course, functions. Things happen, things are done, there are jobs to do, there are commands to be obeyed, but if we don't grasp the church as Christ's body, we will always be misguided. We will be a church with potentially lots of zeal, but without knowledge. Paul writes to the, in Romans that the Israel had a lot of zeal, but it was without knowledge. So you start with what God has said is true, and then you work out from that. Here's my rabbit trail. It is precisely a failure to understand ontology that America has so many of the problems that it has. We don't know who we are in Western culture. We don't know who we are. We're taking guesses so that when a baby's born, a doctor's guessing as to the sex of the child. Because we don't know who we are. And so in our culture, because we don't know ontology, we don't know who we are, people are struggling to find who they are. And they're, they can identify as very fluidly as to different things that they are on different occasions, because we don't know. That's a problem. That's ontology. 
But people are not independent autonomous beings. Autonomous meaning self-governing, self-existent. You are not independent. You are dependent on God for your ontology. God tells you who you are and you work out from that. That's true as a Christian. It's true if you're not a Christian. In our culture, we have to understand who God is as creator. And then by the grace of God, we will understand who God is as redeemer. But he's our creator, whether you recognize it or not. So, it is not until after we acknowledge God's design and purpose that we can, we can find meaning and pursue function. The reason why our culture struggles mightily in this area is because they've already eliminated the concept of God, the God of Scripture. They've eliminated the Bible as the authoritative word of God. And so they are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every wind of cultural belief, every wind of science, tossed to and fro. Because we have no idea in Western culture, secular Western culture, what is our being, which is given to us by God. God is the only being who is eternally self-existent, the only being who is sovereign, the only being who is autonomous. Everything else in all of creation exists because God is creator. Only God is without beginning and without end. Only God is self-existent. And so God defines and assigns meaning to all that he's created. Why it's there. What it exists for. How it is to live out its existence to the glory of himself as creator. That's the story of scripture. We lack the ability and the right to give being to God. We don't assign God his being. God assigns us our being. But in Western culture, because we are so independent and arrogant and prideful, we think we can define God rather than God define us. Now, I've got a very uh, recent and uh, personal example of this. This uh, is a Facebook post from my niece in Delaware. One of my nieces in Delaware, she's just a little older than Sarah, and she has a child that she was going to take trick-or-treating just six days ago. And this was her post on Facebook, and it reads this way, I let my daughter know it might rain tonight for Halloween. Bracing myself for her response, she surprised me. She said, quote, God's washing his hands so that he can hand out candy to all the little angels, end quote. My niece wrote, I feel like I should add that I don't take my children to church or read them the Bible. She has asked for a Bible before, and I bought her one. She has asked to pray, and we pray together. She has also asked to cleanse her crystals during a full moon and burn sage to get rid of negative feelings. We talk about faith, something bigger than ourselves. We talk about good and evil. Amelia's faith is her very own. It is what she gets out of her life. And I love the purity of it. She doesn't feel bound by man-made rules and structured habits, but she believes in a God in a beautiful way. She's unjaded by the world. And 51 people liked it. Which isn't surprising. We live in a secular culture. We live in a culture that doesn't recognize God's word as, as inspired truth. So why wouldn't 51 people like it? It's your idea of God. It's beautiful. 
It's touching. It's warm. That's our culture. A lack of ontology, a lack of understanding. We don't define who God is, wiping tears off angels, and that's why it's raining. We don't define who God is where uh, uh, we love the purity of God we've created and our idea of right and wrong. God is who He is. He defines Himself. And He defines who we are. That's the subject of ontology. God is the only being who is eternally self-existent, sovereign, and autonomous. Now, contrary to what I just read you, I'm going to read from Alicia Britt Collet's book, Finding an Unseen God. She was an atheist. Uh, she became a believer. She wrote that marvelous book, Anonymous, which is just one of my top ten, I think, favorite books I've ever read in my life. I love that book. But this is her book about coming to faith from, from atheism. Now, this is a quote that I showed you in April on Resurrection Sunday. So, if it sounds familiar, uh, it's because it is, but it's such a good quote. This book isn't as good as Anonymous, but this quote is, is so relevant to our culture, and it just, it's like, it's like dropping the microphone, like, boom. Like, she said that, and it, she nails it. Here's what uh, Alicia says about God being self-existent, sovereign, and autonomous. Almost all of us have beliefs about God. Even if we do not particularly believe in God, most of us have an assortment of beliefs about God. How are those beliefs formed? We become annoyed when people draw conclusions about who we are when they don't even know us. We become aggravated when people make assumptions without ever giving us the chance to speak for ourselves. We call that arrogance. I don't define who Lori is. Lori's her own person. And Lori doesn't define who Jonathan is and go down the line. You are your own person. You have your own personality, your own thoughts, your own aspirations, your own fears and disappointments. I don't get to assign those to other people. And you don't get to assign those to other people as well. God has his own thoughts, his own will, his own character, his own nature. She goes on to say, Yet we do the same thing to God on a regular basis. We frequently draw conclusions about who God is without really knowing him. We regularly make assumptions about why God does what he does without ever giving him the chance to speak for himself. I invite you to reconsider the portraits you have painted of God. I invite you to risk holding that portrait up, up toward God and comparing your version with the original. When we look at scripture, we are, we are taking our portrait of God, even our portrait of ourselves, and we're comparing it with what God says is true. We don't define God. He defines us. And he defines himself. Well, that is shocking in American culture. Because we think we get to define everything. We get to define ourselves and we get to define whatever our belief is about God. We find that shocking. I suppose it's as shocking and as appalling as when Nicholas uh, Copernicus, I can't remember how to say his name. Connie, help me with that. What? Copernicus. Copernicus. And this is something I practice. Like, I keep trying to get it right. <laughs> when he said, our, 
all of the universe doesn't revolve around the earth. It just doesn't. And people are, I think they had the same shocked reaction. How dare you suggest such a thing? This is appalling. We can't even imagine it. Who do you think you are? But in fact, he was right. In fact, he was right. It's the same thing that happens as when good Christians or good people or people in general read the Bible. When I read the Bible, I've got my mind is flooded with ideas of what I think is right. And there's times I come to the Bible and I'm like, my mouth drops open and I'm like, did I just read what I just read? Because that is shocking to me. That is not the idea maybe I grew up with. That's not the idea I, I heard taught in a particular church or a particular situation. There's, the Bible is meant to shock you. Because you don't define God in the Bible. God defines himself. And we need to, we need to submit ourselves to what God has chosen to reveal about himself, about ourselves, and about everything he's created. And there are times... It doesn't make sense, and it's unsettling, and it may be shocking, but it's no less true. Because God, it all starts with God. Now let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts off this way. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he's getting ready to say something, what is he getting ready to say? But he never gets around to saying that thing until verses 14 and 19. Because he goes on his own rabbit trail, which we've already talked a little bit about when we did our scripture reading. What he wants, what he's getting ready to say is he's going to talk about how he prays for them. He wants them to know, here's the content of my prayer. Here's what I'm praying for you. That's That's where he's going to, but he doesn't get there for a good number of verses yet. He gets sidetracked. He talks about, there's a reason why I'm going to pray for you. And the reason why that he just refers to when he says it's for this reason, what is the reason? It goes back to at least the verse immediately before. So the last verse of chapter 20 of chapter two reads in Christ You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm praying for you. Because you're being built together into this dwelling place for a holy God. That's why I pray for you. Because I know God's purpose for you as Gentiles. Believing Gentiles. It's the same purpose God has for those believing Jews. He's fashioning you together into this thing called a holy temple, called the church, built upon the the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So that's, that's why Paul prays like he prays. There's a relationship then between Paul being a prisoner and he says it's on behalf of you Gentiles. So Paul knows what's happening for these believing Gentiles, That's why he's a prisoner. It's for them. And he prays. Which is kind of an amazing thing where um, Paul's a prisoner on some level. Well, he, he calls himself for Christ Jesus. So he understands behind it all is God. Behind it all is Christ. He wouldn't be a prisoner if this was a somewhat out of the will of God. In the, in the providence of God, it is good for him to be a prisoner right here and now. But in another sense, he recognizes this because you, I'm a prisoner. Okay? 
And and I would be kind of really down by that if I was a prisoner because of you guys. Like, you know, if our culture goes bad enough and and eventually I, I become a prisoner because I stood up, I was the pastor and they got me and they threw me in prison. I don't know that I'd be real happy with that. I think Paul... Paul seems to be rejoicing in that as you read his prison epistles, the letters he writes while he's in prison. And one of the reasons why it's not surprising to me is because Paul is so committed and loving and dedicated to the people God has put into his charge. In fact, Paul, Paul's like, this is nothing because uh, I, I wrote a letter to the Romans where I wished myself a curse that Israel would come to faith, which is... That's really mind-blowing, because I can't imagine wishing myself accursed by God so that others would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul wrote that. I think he meant it. So to be in prison, that's like cupcakes for Paul. Uh, but he's in prison because of those Gentiles. Paul's imprisonment and reason for praying is directly tied to his ministry to the Gentiles. There's a direct correlation. He's in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, this is all borne out in the book of Acts. I'm going to survey it pretty quickly. We're doing really good on time. But, uh, well, I guess maybe I will have you turn there. Let's start with Paul's first missionary journey. If you're in Sunday school, this is recent material. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 922. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And this is when he is in Antioch, Pisidia. This is the region of Galatia. And we're going to develop this theme in his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, and then after his third missionary journey. So this covers 10 to 12 years total. In these 10 to 12 years, it looks something like this. Go to Acts chapter 13, look at verse 38. Paul, or Luke records these words. <clears throat> Paul is talking, though. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44. The next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. That's a real pivotal point in Paul's ministry. The Jews are resistant. They're obstinate. They're they're opposing him. Uh, They're slandering him. They're aggressively fighting him. And Paul says, all right, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, woohoo! They're glad to hear this message. And they're throngs of Gentiles that are placing their faith in Christ. That's a turning point in his ministry. Paul never loses his heart for the Jews. He usually always starts with the Jews. No matter where he's at, he still, he still takes it to Israel first. But as it turns out, it's the Gentiles that keep responding to this gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, in Paul's second missionary journey, chapter 18, and the first six verses, if you're using a pew Bible, that's 927. Chapter 18, this is Paul's ministry at Corinth. He spent a year and a half there. It reads like this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. Then finally, after his third missionary journey, turn to Acts chapter 21. So the latter part of uh, the chapter, going into chapter 22. Paul goes, uh, this is after his third journey, Paul has got it in his heart to go to Jerusalem. And he gets these prophetic warnings. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. They're going to bind you. And Paul's like, look, I'm ready to give my life. So I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And, and sure enough, that's what happens. But how it happens is terribly interesting. I can't wait for Larry to get to Acts chapter uh, 21. That is one tough chapter. <laughs> As as tough as 15 is, chapter 21, at any rate, I'm going to play this. This is going to be David Suchet, his dramatic reading of uh, the New International Version. So if you're using the English Standard Version, it won't line up perfectly, but he does such a good job reading. I'm going to play his version of what happens when Paul goes to Jerusalem and uh, he's trying to make peace with Jews, believing Jews, who are zealous for the law. And he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple courtyards, which he didn't do, but he's accused of that. It doesn't go well. So start in chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, it reads like, it sounds like this. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, 
fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led four thousand terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, 
brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. So when Paul first starts speaking, there's a, in Aramaic or Hebrew, depending on your Bible version, when he first starts speaking, a hush falls over everybody, and they're, very, they're, they're listening attentively. They're hanging on every word. They're very interested in what Paul has to say, but as moment he brings up the Gentiles, that Christ sent him to the Gentiles, they, they're in a furor again, and they want Paul dead. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians... I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. It is very much the case. He's in Rome right now because he's appealed to Rome because the Jews are opposing him because of Paul's message and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. There's a relationship between the two. Here's the conclusion. Paul interrupts himself. He wants to pray, but he interrupts himself because in order to understand the significance of his prayer, his readers need to grasp the magnificence of the mystery. They really won't understand the prayer if they don't appreciate the mystery. And so Paul goes down a rabbit trail about that mystery. It's a, it's a theological explanation. It's, I just gave you a historical explanation. We, we were in Acts. We looked at what happened historically over a period of about 12 years. The Jews that opposed him. And Paul taking his message to the Gentiles. That's what it looks like historically. But theologically, Paul's going to explain it in this letter written to what we call the Ephesians. It looks like this. Paul says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Now, that's kind of, I've got those two parts in yellow. Because this letter is called the letter to the Ephesians. Why would Paul say to the Ephesians, assuming you've heard about this, and I've written about it briefly? There's no church that we know of that Paul spent more time than the church at Ephesus. He spent two and a half up to three years in Ephesus. Of course they've heard about it. But he writes that because Paul is writing a letter that is not only to the Ephesians, it's a circular letter. It will be received by lots of churches in the entire area. Here we are 2,000 years later, it's received by us too. 
We didn't hear Paul preach it, but we've seen, we've seen what Paul wrote about it. And so Paul knows the letter that we call the Ephesians. It's not only to the Ephesians. It's to all those churches in the area. So he has to assume they've heard about this. He's written about it briefly. That's the first two chapters. And he will go on from there. The big point of, in what he's writing here is this concept of a mystery. We'll talk more about this next week. The simple answer now, which we've looked at in weeks pr- prior is that a mystery in the Bible is something that once was not made known, but it's now been revealed. It's very different from a mystery in our culture. In our mystery, you read a mystery and you're never really sure how it's going to turn out. And you're making your guesses and you're like, I think he did it. No, I think he did it. You know, and you're trying to figure it out because there's all these little hidden clues, but you, nothing's very clear. That's a mystery. But in the Bible, a mystery is, oh yeah, there was a time people were guessing But it's a mystery because now God's revealed the answer. Now we know. We don't have to guess any longer. We know what God has done. So the mystery is on the resolution in the Bible. It's on the front end of we just have a lot of questions in our culture. That's a mystery. And the mystery specifically is the Gentiles are fellow heirs. He's talking about with Israel. They are members of the same body with believing Jews and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. There are any number of mysteries revealed in the New Testament. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but some of us will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. That's a mystery. We didn't know about that before, but now it's been clearly revealed. Now, I probably should pause... Because the Bible has always revealed that Gentiles are a part of God's saving work. I mean, when God made his covenant promise to Abraham, he told Abraham, Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we spent like a year, year and a half in Isaiah, and we kept reading lots of passages in Isaiah where the gospel, salvation goes out to all the nations of the earth. The far off islands are going to praise the Lord for his salvation. That's always been part of the plan. But how it would take place, that's the mystery. How is it the Gentiles, they don't become Jews. They become fellow heirs. They become members of the same body, a new body. They become partakers of the promise. How it would transpire is the mystery part. The fact that Gentiles would be included was not a mystery. But how it happened exceeded anybody's wildest expectations, and the Jews aren't happy about it. (laughs) And the Gentiles are rejoicing. All right, then. So, that last part in verse 6, when it talks about Gentiles being partakers of the promise, that is a fascinating statement. What promise are we talking about? And I imagine we could point to several different things and... Next week, I imagine we'll spend more time on that promise and we'll talk about it. But for the short term, Paul has used that term twice in Ephesians so far. The first time, I think, is the most important time. And I'm going to read it from the New King James Version because it does, it's actually just more accurate. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Paul writes in uh, chapter 1, In him you also trusted, 
after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word promise is a noun, the way Paul wrote it in, in Greek. In the English Standard Version, and most, most versions, they write it as an adjective. The promised Holy Spirit. What kind of spirit is he? Well, he's the promised Holy Spirit. But it's not an adjective, it's a noun. He's the Holy Spirit of promise. It's something Israel was looking forward to. Certainly the disciples were looking forward to it. Because, you know, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, there's coming one after me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of promise. They've been looking for that spirit. And now Paul says to Gentiles, you're partakers of the promise. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Which is what Peter preached about Cornelius when he went to Jerusalem. Look, they received the Holy Spirit. Who was I to stand against what God is doing? And we're shares of the inheritance. That Holy Spirit is a, is a deposit guaranteeing the full inheritance. And I'm a sharer in that. I've got a share in that inheritance because of the promise. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the promise is ours by virtue of our faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is ours based upon Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit upon His church beginning at Pentecost. We remind ourselves of all these things when we partake of the Lord's Supper. The promise is ours. The inheritance is ours. It's because of God's grace, because of His Son, because of His Spirit. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, the song is going to be a little more upbeat than sometimes I play because sometimes the songs have to do with The promise is ours because Christ died on a cross.